Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Brett. Lots of things we're looking at this morning. The emerald ash borer, this is a little critter that we had never heard of probably up until, what, about 90 days ago, Brett? Mm. Uh, 350,000 ash trees in Winnipeg. So this is a big deal if this is in our province, in our city, and uh, we are going to uh, talk about that a little bit later this morning and also uh, find out what can be done to prevent the destruction that this beetle, this bug, uh, can wreak on uh, something like uh, one of our one of our cherished trees. And like I said, three hundred fifty thousand. Um, I think there's only four hundred thousand elm trees in Winnipeg. So almost on par, almost as big a part of the landscape in our city. Yeah, the city was hosting workshops yesterday, teaching its foresters to survey ash trees for beetle activity. This is a a bug that can't fly long distances, so humans are actually, we are inadvertently making the problem worse, I guess, that we're bringing them over here. So yeah, this is something uh, that you might not really think of, but we we always talk about how our canopy of trees, uh, we talk about the canopy of elm trees that makes our city so beautiful, but as you pointed out, 350,000 ash trees are also contributing to that uh, wonderful landscape of ours. It, it reminds me of the zebra mussels conversation. Mm-hmm. We're responsible for transporting those little critters from one body of water to the other because we're not as responsible as we ought to be in terms of being boat owners and boat users. Uh, I, I suspect this has to do with firewood and bringing firewood from other jurisdictions, and it doesn't take much nope, to start doesn't. an infestation. So. And I, I remember one, uh, I had uh, a boar, I don't think it was an ash boar, but I did have a boar beetle land on my leg. I think I've told you this before at Pinawa, and I was golfing with a friend of mine, and I and uh, I looked down and I saw this rather large bug, and um, I said, "Should I be scared of that?" Because <laughs> he has a cabin in northwestern Ontario, and he says, "Oh, that's a boar beetle." Uh, well, you know, it, it can bite through a tree, so you might not want it on your leg. <laughs> You have skin of bark. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even going to help you. I promptly shook him off and then ran away like a little child. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, uh, another thing that caught my attention, I mentioned to you this morning, we know that Calgary is thinking about making a bid for the 2026 Winter Olympics. Mm -hmm. When Rio had the 2016 Summer Games, I floated on the air the idea of Canada bidding to host a Summer Games. Not just like Toronto and area... But I was dead serious about Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, getting together and hosting a summer games. And a lot of people like the idea. There were some people who said, well, the IOC is never going to go for that. That's across way too far a geographic area. Well, news yesterday that the IOC would be open to the idea of using venues outside of Alberta for a Calgary Winter Games, including the ski jumps at Whistler. The ski jumps in Calgary are not up to standard, would cost about $100 million to revamp or rebuild them somewhere else. Whistler said, hey, well, why don't you use ours? Calgary, been trying to get a new hockey arena. At least the Calgary Flames have been trying to get a new arena. Edmonton said at one point, we have a brand new arena three hours up the road. Come play hockey here. In fact, they have two 
17,000 plus seat arenas in Edmonton. So this conversation, well, they have the old Northlands Coliseum where the Oilers played before they moved to Rogers Place. They never tore it down. It's on the uh, exhibition grounds there. And they have a 6,000 seat or 5,000 seat uh, uh, hockey uh, venue in Edmonton as well. So this, I think this conversation is going to broaden. And uh, it also was pointed out in this article that the equestrian events for the Beijing Olympics were actually held in Hong Kong. I did not know that. So this would not be unprecedented. So that conversation could open up again. And if the Canadian government's going to spend $2 billion or $3 billion on one city hosting an Olympic Games, I say, hold the phone. Let's spread the economic benefit across a greater geographic area. I think it's a topic of discussion to continue. Mackling McGarry in the morning, 680 CGOB. For 13 years, Brad Galloway was a fixture in the world of extremism, initially with the Toronto skinhead movement and later in British Columbia as the national leader of a neo-Nazi group. But then he walked away. Global News National online investigative journalist Stuart Bell is here now to tell us how Galloway left the hate movement for good. You can read the the story right now, globalnews.ca. It is the main story. Stuart joins us live on 680 CJOB. Stuart, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Who is Brad Galloway? Well, Brad Galloway is uh, he's a university student. He's studying criminology uh, in BC. He's a father. He's got a couple of kids. Uh, and he does a lot of community service work, but uh, he has a past. And um, when I first met him a couple of years ago to begin speaking about uh, his sort of coming out about his past, it's quite an astonishing story. Uh, He spent, as you said, uh, over a dozen years uh, deeply involved in the Canadian hate movement, uh, leading up to him being the leader of a group called Volksfront, which was trying to uh, establish a sort of whites-only homeland in the Pacific Northwest, which is the ambition of a lot of uh, a lot of sort of white supremacist organizations in in North America. Um, but what's amazing about his story is how he just at one point um, had kind of an epiphany and walked away. And the focus of the story really is about um, his struggle to leave and his message, which is that. You can do it. I mean, even someone who is as deeply involved as he was uh, can walk away, put it behind them, and move on to lead a more uh, productive life. Stuart, it's Greg Mackling speaking, and I'm, I'm reading part of the this incredible article right now, and it says here, today is a criminology student at the University of the Fraser Valley. N- never mind holding the position he did within this organization to have the strength to walk away and to get himself away from this, he's going completely on the other side to a point where he's speaking out publicly and educating himself clearly to have a role uh, within the criminal justice system. Yeah, and that's, in fact, that's not that uncommon among extremists who come around, who reform. A lot of them, uh, I think, you know, they feel bad about what they've done. He, he clearly feels bad about the uh, the views that he held about, uh, you know, minorities and things like that. His groups are particularly hard on Jews, and uh, he he feels bad about it. And I think there's some atonement going on, uh, which is, you know, you see among a fair number of extremists when they do leave, they seem to want to make up for it. And uh, in his case, he's been 
giving public lectures on uh, how to fight extremism, and he's been you know, speaking to law enforcement, for example, and, uh, and he's, in fact, making this, this whole area, which is a really developing area of research, He's been uh, he's been working, uh, concentrating on that and helping with that kind of research. Stuart, we have to run in about sixty seconds. But uh, has Brad or is he having trouble sort of dealing with the mistakes of his past, with the fact that he had this dark cloud hanging over him for so long? I mean, how do you let that go? Well, I think as we say, I think the way that he's dealing with it is uh, is to try and lead. Uh, he says a more positive life. And, uh, and I think the way he's doing that is by helping contribute uh, to the defeat of this type of extremism, all types of extremism. And it's something, you know, we're all, it's the big question we're all dealing with in national security right now is how do you stop young people from getting involved in whether it's, you know, the Islamic State or whatever, and how do you help them leave? And this is where he comes in, helping people make that step out of hate movements and extremist movements and getting on to getting on with their lives. Well, and as Brad mentioned off the top, it's all about that sense of belonging is what gets you in to begin with. Uh, Fabulous work, Stuart. We appreciate the access and uh, your outstanding journalism. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And the headline at globalnews.ca is Leaving Extremism, a Canadian Racist Leader's Journey Out of Hate. It is the main story at globalnews.ca. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Thursday morning. We're joined by the whole crew. The whole gang is here. Chantelie Vidal, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and as always, behind the glass, Jerry. One mom hopes to teach her five-year-old daughter the value of money by charging her rent. <laughs> we had a conversation about this in the newsroom. We wanted to bring it into the studio. Essence Evans of Atlanta, Georgia, revealed her strategy to other parents by posting a message on Facebook over the weekend. The mom explained that every week her daughter gets a $7 allowance. $5 of that goes back to mom for things like rent, water, electricity, cable, and food. Evan says the $5 her daughter gives back is actually going into a savings account that will be given back to her daughter when she turns 18. I've been a strong advocate for the education of young people with regard to money. I'm not sure if this is the way to go, but I like this woman's style. Kelly, why don't we come to you? You uh, work. <laughs> you you've been working since you were four years old. No, so. no, 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 no. I was seven though when I started washing dishes in my parents' restaurant for a buck a week plus plus <laughs> bonus a, a signing bonus a fudgical. Uh, my choice. <laughs> My choice of a hamburger or hot dog, What'd and you take? my choice of a pop every day. Every oh day. Yeah. Are you going for the hamburger or the hot dog? I think you went I, for the I, hot I, dog by the looks of it. Hamburgers are just uh, as filling. But, but guilty as charged. But anyway, I, I, I like the idea of, of teaching some fiscal responsibility, and I don't think it, it can ever be too uh, young of an age. A prime example... My daughter just the other day, uh, her daughters are seven and four years old. So they're out shopping. And when it's mommy's money, mm. it's easy to just, you know, go ahead. It's and only $12. So what she did was she gave them each $20. And when it was their money, wow, all of a sudden uh, the, the rules of engagement changed. So I, I think there's some good lessons to learn without being too traumatizing for the children. 
fiscal responsibility. How did you learn yours, Shanalee Vidal? Um, I didn't actually really get an allowance until I think I was a teenager. I just got money whenever I needed it or wanted it, and my parents would say yes or no to something. But what I learned about money when I was a kid is uh, to hide it very, very well when you have it and to not tell anyone that you have money. Because I Are don't... you talking about your brother here? <laughs> yes. My, uh, you know, it's funny because you, 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 I don't know where I'd get the money, but I'd, I was a little hoarder with money and I would not spend it, but I would, I would, you know, just like Halloween candy, I would save it up and I'd be so excited and I'd look at the money and I'd, I'd touch it and I'd, you know, and I'm like, look how rich I am. And then I'd put it away and then it would go missing. <laughs> And, and there was nothing I could do about it. So I didn't have a good enough hiding spot. But then, you know, when you're, if, you're, if your friends find out you have a couple of bucks or something, like, oh, okay. can you go buy me some candy? Can yeah. you, can you, can you, can you, can you, can you, this is how the Winnipeggers talk. Can you borrow me five bucks? <laughs> and, say, and I'd say, excuse me, what, 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 what you, you want, you want to give me money? What? Oh, oh, you want, you want my money. Oh, so that, that took, I'm not from here originally. My, so. Yeah, well, my dad corrected me real quick. Do you yeah. want to borrow $5 or do you want me just to give you give $5? Yeah. yeah, dad, I have zero intention of paying you back. Just give me five <laughs> bucks. Yeah, that's fine. My parents would lend me money. Uh, I would get an allowance too. And when I was real little, again, it, it just all goes to candy, right? And sometimes, you know, hockey cards. I was yeah, going to say hockey I cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and I, as I got dogs. a little bit older, I, I had a paper route and then it would be uh, just a a one or two week loan until I got paid. Come on, because I wanted to buy a new album or something. And it was always a CD or something like that. And to this day, I consider buying an album like a major purchase. And I, I look, at it, I think about it. I wait on it. I sleep on it before I'll drop ten dollars on an album I've been waiting three years for. How about the fact that record albums or CDs cost the same amount today as they did when we were eleven, twelve, thirteen, yeah. ten, eleven, twelve bucks back in the eighties was commonplace. Jerry, how did you get your fiscal uh, education? Well, I, I got a an allowance when I was a kid if I did my chores and I had to do every single one of my chores for the entire I only got paid bi-weekly so every two weeks I got an allowance and if I didn't do all of my chores in those two weeks I didn't get anything oh wow yeah so that that and and so I I treasured every penny that I got on my allowance and I hated spending it <laughs> hated it really Absolutely. I, I just wanted to keep all that money because I knew eventually I'd be able to get something big. I didn't know what, but I knew it would be big. So I, I wouldn't want to buy candy. I wouldn't want to buy pop. I wouldn't want to buy chip. I wouldn't want to buy any of that stuff with my own money because I knew that eventually someday I'd be able to get something big. Did you buy like your own patio furniture and not let your family use it or something like that? <laughs> no, I, th I think when you're a kid, you know, something big, like I, I want that Atari 2600 game. Oh, I thought it was a collector Superman comic. It was probably Atari 2600 <laughs> Superman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was always the thing. There's always a huge goal. And, right. And whatever it was, I was saving my money until I could get that. But what was the first thing that was? I bought a sword. I remember buying a sword. Like a real sword? or a No, a real, a real sword. So much for that like, as like, being a strategy. Throw that one out. I bought a sword. What kind of sword? A katana. A katana? Did you name it? No. Okay. No. Did you hang it over your bed and all that? Yes. Yeah, of course you did. 
<laughs> Did you ever chop any of your friend's legs off with it or anything? Uh, no, not not from lack of trying. Okay. <laughs> you always lament your financial habits. Yep. Uh, where, where did it go awry for you? Oh, it's always been awry. I, uh, my parents gave me an allowance, and, and you know they tried. They tried to teach me fiscal responsibility, but money always burned a hole in my pocket. Honestly, the one time... I, I think in my life where I can look back and say, yeah, I put my nose down and I saved money was when I was about 12 years old. I wanted a television in my room, so I saved up the money. I had this, you know, those little black change pockets that we used to carry around when we were kids? Well, I, ha- I managed to cram like $313 into that little thing. Wow. Yikes. Uh, just for my allowance that I saved up over, I don't know, a year or so. That's like $9,000 in today money. Uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, uh, so I bought a 13-inch Emerson brand television at Majestic Electronics. Do you and remember that? How much that? was it? It was like 300 bucks. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but oh. Majestic, was that at St. James and Ellis, I think? Saint- yeah, it had a li- it was the lion, I remember. Yes, the yes. lion. Yes. Yeah, it was a yellow and black logo. <laughs> and uh, I remember watching the Arsenio Hall television show in bed that night where they had, they had this little inch. earbud. Yeah, it was a big <laughs> wow. deal. It was exciting stuff. But that's the one time that I can remember where uh, money did not burn a hole in my pocket. I don't know what it is. I, 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 I just... I can't hold on to it. I did, get money and I spend it. Did the $300 include the remote? It did, yeah. Oh, okay. The remote was included, yeah. So and didn't have with, to get out of bed. Came to with batteries the too. <laughs> no, I didn't have to do that. So that was, but that was uh, that was an exciting time for me, and I wish that I had learned more from that experience. But uh, sadly, I did not. How are you educating your kids on how to use money? Properly, 204-780-6868 with your stories via text or shoot me an email, gmac at cjob.com or my partner in crime, Brett McGarry. It's just Brett, B-R-E-T-T at cjob.com. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry. It's a dry cold in Manitoba. Christian Hormel was told that when he first moved here. It may be warming up, but we all know that it won't be long before Old Man Winter returns with a vengeance. We talk about plugging in your car, getting snow tires, all the things that come with winter. But what about static electricity? Global News reporter Christian O'Mell has this shocking story. admit, I didn't know much about Winnipeg when I moved here a few years ago. I knew about the Jets and Bombers and it's cold. But it's a dry cold, they said, trying to convince me that makes it easier to deal with. But it's true. The wind chill here doesn't stun me to my core like the breeze off Lake Huron did growing up. But there's a side effect to that that I was shocked out to learn about. Go grab your phone plugged into the wall. Shuffle off the couch to click on the next show you're binging on your laptop. Static. Electricity. Electricity. And to learn more about static, I took a trip to the Manitoba Museum to talk with Kevin Moak, planetarium and science gallery educator, which means what? I like to call myself the jack-of-all-trades, master of none. All right, Kevin, tell me about static. Static electricity comes from the movement of electrons. In the atom, they themselves are made up of smaller parts, the proton and the electron. And generally, they stay together. But... Some materials are more willing to give up their electrons while others are willing to take it. And this happens when we rub things together. Classic example, rubber balloon on your hair. So your hair is willing to give up your electron, whereas the balloon is willing to take it. So we now have two things with an unbalanced charges. Your hair are unbalanced towards a positive charge and the balloon towards the negative. And that's what's going to create the static charges. They stop being static when they reconnect. 
So that's when we get our shocks. Those negative charges recombine and balance out with the positive charges. Now you may have noticed some electricity between us because there literally was. An old looking Van de Graaff generator was running in front of us in the basement of the museum. It's a metallic orb atop a tube next to another metal ball on a stick looking thing in which, um, you know what, let's just let the science guy explain it. We've got the belt spinning. This is pulling the electrons out of the dome. So the dome is left with a positive charge and then those electrons sort of get put out into the air. We call it ionizing the air. My second dome is what we call the neutral dome and that has both electrons and protons in it, sort of milling about, it's neutral. But when we approach the two, the strong attractive force between protons, the positive charge in my active dome, and the free moving electrons in the passive dome, they get pulled across the air and we create static electricity or lightning. Now, about that whole dry, cold thing. Toronto, you're right beside a lake, so you've got that lake humidity. And yes, that's wet cold, a humid cold. You can find a dry cold like this anywhere on the prairies. Hit the coast on BC, you're probably not going to find it. It all comes down to water. Water allows electrons to flow a little more easily, and so it'll move the balance back into place without that jolt, without that shock. So the more moisture in the air, the more easily electrons flow back and balance out. Winter, of course, it's nice and dry. So the air around us is dry, everything's quite dry. So those electrons can't move as easily as they can in the summer. They're sort of stuck where they are. And we wear a lot of woolly clothing that tends to take those static charges. So we've combined the two and it's just a beautiful recipe for static. Kevin loves his jobs, interacting with kids, answering questions, and sometimes fixing broken generators. Uh, yeah, we've had it going for a while. Might have to turn it off. I see the belt just snapped. Oh, well, that's all right. We've got spares lying around. I'm just going to kill that. His advice? Enjoy the static. Embrace the dryness. And if you're looking to bring some electricity into the bedroom... No, not like that. My personal favorite is going to bed at night because I'll give my sheets an extra little rub. That way when I lift them up, I can see this beautiful display of charges going off under my blankets. Make sure I always make sure I have my lights off, of course, but it's just a little nerd thing I do. Christian O'Mel, Global News. Thank you very much, Christian. Electric Company, great show. John Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp, telling us, uh, reminding us it's time for the Small Town Salute, brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, where service sets them apart, southbeachcasino.ca. This week, we are headed north, and I don't want to sound like someone from Minneapolis who thinks that Winnipeg is so far north, but it's the equivalent drive, essentially, from Winnipeg to Minneapolis as it is from Winnipeg to where we're going today. We're going to visit the Paw. And this week we are joined by a couple of people. We have the Deputy Mayor, Alan Gibb, and we have the Chair of the Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival, Sonny Lavallee, on the line. Now, the festival is on February 14th to the 18th, so we'll speak with Sonny in a moment. But before we speak with Sonny, we will speak with Deputy Mayor Alan Gibb, joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB from the PAW. Deputy Mayor, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. So the first question then, for those who have never been to the PAW, as Greg mentioned, it's a, it's a bit of a distance. Where is it in relation to Winnipeg? It's just over 600 kilometers north. And actually, if you leave the perimeter, I think you only got to make two turns. So go straight up <laughs> Highway 6, turn left, and then turn right, and then you're here. 
It's an absolutely breathtaking part of our province, uh, Deputy Mayor. Uh, spent uh, one May long weekend. It was 1980 up at Rock Lake, and it was one of the hottest summers ever. It was already green and gorgeous May long weekend. I think it was the same weekend that Mount St. Helens blew its top. And uh, those are my memories of that part of the world. Such a gorgeous place. Tell us a little bit about the terrain, the geography, etc., and what sets it apart uh, from that standpoint to the rest of the province. Well, we're right on the edge of the Canadian Shield, so you're right, it's, it's uh, quite beautiful. Um, we're also lucky we have Clearwater Lake, which is one of the three blue water lakes in the world. Um, if you didn't know any better, you'd think you're in the Caribbean until you stuck your foot in, but um, <laughs> it's a great spot. Which lake is that? Clearwater Lake. Sounds beautiful. I need. I really need. This is a part of our. I've been trying to explore southern Manitoba stuff that I can get to. You know, make a day trip and and still get home. But I have not been to northern Manitoba. And absolutely, I need to make this a priority in the coming years for well, sure. Anytime you guys want to come up, we can uh, find somewhere for you to stay. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you well, for the invitation. On the table. Well, what kind of accommodations do you have then uh, in terms of, like, do you have uh, resorts? Oh, yeah, or? hotels. I mean, it's uh, not the total hinterland, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to imply that. Yeah, and it's, I'm, and it's I'd, okay. You know, a funny story. I'm originally, I moved here just over 10 years ago from Toronto. Oh, my. So, yeah. <laughs> what brought you here from Toronto? Uh, my wife's originally from here, so I work. Okay. Um, we have a property management development company, so. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't matter where in Manitoba, it's usually love or money or maybe a little bit of both that brings you here if you're from somewhere else. Of course, uh, uh, Weiwei Sakapo, uh, First Nation, is uh, kind of like a twin city there, and the Wolverines are a great source of pride there. Right, that's a, a Pasqua Cree nation. You got the wrong one. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, OCN, apologies. Down by Russell, and we're up here. Please forgive you me, Alan. You really got to come up here, man. Yeah, we're <laughs> showing our ignorance, aren't we? <laughs> Bloody Southerners. Well, this is why yeah, we have I'm these kind Ontario, of... but I mean, I don't know. Do they teach geography here? <laughs> I'm unsure. <laughs> Alan's, Alan's making a play for our favorite small town salute of all time. Yeah. No, you're you're calling us out here, Alan, and we appreciate it. <clears throat> and this is why we have these chats, because, you know, a lot of people might not know. We, we've all heard of the pub, but a lot of people might not know a whole lot about it. And one of the things that we do know, the pub was big in the news in 2016 uh, regarding the paper mill there after Tolko was trying to get out and there were over 300 people going to lose their jobs and eventually the business was sold to Canadian craft paper industry. So how are things going on that front? No, we really lucked out there. Uh, A good group of investors came in and uh, the town stepped up, but most importantly, the workers stepped up. Um, It took a bit of a Pay break, that has uh, got to be tough, but uh, the, in turn, the company this fall invested $20 million in the, in the facility to upgrade it. And, and this spring, another $23 million is going in for more upgrades. So uh, it's great. The, the wood trucks drive by the, the main drag every day, and uh, things are still going. So why don't we uh, bring on to the uh conversation maybe we can impress as well uh sunny lavalley our knowledge of the north <laughs> as we talk about the northern manitoba trappers festival alan a genuine pleasure to uh, speak with you this morning but the northern trappers festival is something that's a huge part of the culture not only in the paw but in manitoba and uh, sunny lavalley uh, joins us she uh he or she 
the tea, and I'm just going to hand you off. But before I, I do that, thanks again, guys, for uh, putting up with me. But um, if you do get a chance to come to Trappers, again, coming from Toronto, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and my favorite is always the, the dog races. If you ever see them starting, it's uh, it's pretty cool. So, again, uh, open offer. You guys want to come up? We'll look after you. Thanks, Alan. That's Thank really kind of you. Thank you so much. Sonny Lavallee now is joining us, chair of the Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival, which is on from February 14th to the 18th. So we, I know it's a few weeks away yet, but we wanted to put it on your radar in case you wanted to make the, the trek to the paw. Sonny, yeah, we, we heard uh, Deputy Mayor Alan Gibb talking about the dog races. Why don't we start there? Uh, what makes, uh, you know, how many teams would be participating in, uh, in the dog race? Uh, okay, good morning. Uh I'm still trying to wake up here. <laughs> yeah, we so are we. <laughs> yeah, I just usually get uh, the wife usually goes to work at six in the morning, so I get up with her just to make sure she has her coffee and uh, breakfast before she goes. So, but uh, no, the, the the excitement of the dog races are you have eighteen to twenty five, sometimes almost thirty teams lined up, and it's a mass start, and you hear the dogs howling and barking and. The people that are standing on the banks or behind the dog teams just uh, watching them rearing to, to go. And once the uh, the starting gun goes, you see that many teams uh, rushing all at once to get out to uh, into first place and leading leading the pack out in the out in the trail. You know, I've been watching this all my life, and uh, I tell people I was at the very first. First festival, my mother was pregnant with me that year. She ran the ladies' race, but and I think that's where all this, uh, this excitement comes from. But I've seen it every year for since I can remember to watch a mass start. You know, just something just gets inside of you and so excited, and everybody gets feels the same way. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture right now of all the dogs heading out. Is that on the river or on the lake, Sonny? Actually, we have it's called Helker Lake. Uh, uh, years ago, we, get, we were told not to run on the river anymore because of the uh, ice conditions and that. So we ch- we took over to the uh, to the uh, Helker Lake area, where the dogs just started way back in the fifties and early sixties and that. But now we're it's our permanent home, and it's a very very good vantage point for the spectators. And we get hundreds and hundreds of people watching. We get school kids, we get uh, townspeople, out of town people, and uh, visitors, and you know everybody just verges down on the Helker Lake to watch the dogs take off. Well, we're, we're run out of time, Sonny. Thank you for this. Best of luck with this year's Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival. It runs February 14th to February 18th, and I know we've got that much correct. Yes, right. <laughs> and it's our 71st festival, you know what, and it's been excited every year. Do you have a website for it, Sonny? Pardon me? Do you have a website for the festival? Yes, we have the Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival 2017. Okay. Uh, yeah, and we do have a Facebook page, but I don't know how to put uh, the... Uh, I, I don't get on Facebook, but uh, we do have a Facebook page, too. Well, we'll find it. Hey, Sonny, thanks for joining us today. Sonny Lavalley is the chair of the Northern Manitoba Trappers Festival, and we also spoke to the deputy mayor of the PAW, Alan Gibb, the small-town salute once again, brought to you by South Beach Casino and Resort, where service sets them apart, southbeachcasino.ca. The Trappers Festival sounds fun. The PAW sounds great. And uh, again, Alan, thanks for the offer for to, to let us come pay a visit. 
Theron Fleury joins us, and uh, hundreds of junior high students are gathering uh, to uh, hear from, well, I guess it was yesterday for the Youth uh, Matter Wellness Conference here in Winnipeg, the event hosted by Winnipeg Police Service focused on wellness and safety in the community and online for young people. Uh, keynote speakers included Theron Fleury and Leah Parsons. Parsons' daughter, uh, Retea, took her own life following an alleged sexual assault and relentless bullying. Theron Fleury is now getting ready for speaking engagement at Stony Mountain Penitentiary. Theo, thanks for hanging on the line with us. We went a little long with our previous guest. Always great to connect with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I know Russell claims you, but were you actually born in Saskatchewan? Can you clear this up in 20 seconds for us so uh, we can get this straight? I was born in Oxbow, Saskatchewan, which I lived there for probably a month. And then uh, I think I was six when I got to Russell. So and then lived there till I was 15 and then, you know, moved on to bigger and better things. So, the, you know, the claiming you on the sign, uh, the formative years were spent in Russell. And, of yes, course, <laughs> so, you know, you're a Manitoba boy through and through, but your journey is uh, legendary. Talk about the story that you were sharing yesterday with uh, with with the young people. Well, I was just, you know, um, you know, I talked about how, you know, trauma, mental health, and addiction are sort of all connected and, and uh and then it's important to ask for help. You know, it doesn't mean you're weak. It actually means you're a person of courage and strength and, and all that. And, and then I sort of finished it off with, you know, get off your cell phones and, and uh, you know, connect to people. You know, I think the reason why, um, you know, a lot of kids are addicted to their cell phones is they're either not connected at home or they're not connected at school. And, and uh so I think, you know, it's really important, you know, the message is, you know, take a break from your cell phone, take a break from social media and, and uh, you know, connect with people because it's really important, uh, you know, especially when you're young, you know, it develops those relationship, uh, you know, morals that we, you know, that we need when we leave the nest and, uh, you know, it's important to connect with people. Now, Theo, uh, I'm not, uh, this is full disclosure here, just to provide some context. I've never been a huge hockey fan, but you don't need to be a hockey fan to know the name Theo Fleury uh, would strike fear into the hearts of many opponents on the ice. Uh, Mm -hmm. But as time has gone on, you've become this huge champion of, uh, you know, as you pointed out, talking about mental health and all these speaking engagements that you do, what, where do you get the continued energy to keep doing this, to keep touring Canada and speaking to various groups uh, to bring this message of hope? Well, you know, as you, you know, when, when Bell Let's Talk gets, you know, 23, 24 million tweets or however, how much, I think, well, maybe more than that uh, over the last couple of years, you know, this is a real epidemic that we're facing, you know, on the planet. And, and uh, you know, having had my own struggles with, you know, mental health and addiction and trauma and all that, uh, you know, it's just the most important thing. And it's such a top of mind topic now that we talk about on a daily basis that, uh you know, if there's any way that I can help by sharing my story or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, especially today, you know, I'm going to Stony Mountain Penitentiary. I believe that it's, you know, 
sort of the forgotten society, the forgotten people. And, and uh, you know, the only thing that separates me from those guys that are, that are in Stony Mountain are, are uh, you know, I just didn't get caught. And, and I think it's important that if we have an opportunity to rehabilitate, uh, you know, these guys where they come out and, and, you know, start participating in their own life, start participating in society, then, you know, that's what we need to do. And, and, you know, I don't think punishment really works at the end of the day, you know, and, uh, you know, these guys need some hope. They need some inspiration. And, and, uh, you know, if I can go in there and provide that today for them, uh, you know, it's great. So, you know, I know the last time that I was there, uh, you know, it was just an amazing experience and, and, uh, you know, this will be, you know, the 15th time, you know, right across Canada that I've had the, uh, you know, the honor of, uh, speaking in a, speaking in a prison, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just important all the way around. You say something there that really strikes me and just this idea that you sound fortunate and you come across and express your gratitude for the fact that could, you know, except for a couple of things, maybe going differently, you might've found yourself in the same position. Maybe the mere fact that you were a New York Ranger or a Calgary flame, uh, mm-hmm. kept you out of prison, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 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 I feel, you know, very fortunate that, you know, my path didn't go that that way. And, and, uh, but you know, I, I look at my life now and, you know, all the stuff, all the bad stuff that happened, you know, the truly gifts now in my life. And, and now I have this amazing opportunity to speak to people who, you know, haven't found their voice yet, or, you know, are living with secrets or they're living with shame and they're living with guilt and they're living with anxiety and they're living with depression. And, you know, I know what that feels like. It's, it's, it's it's not fun and it's difficult and and but you know at the end of the day you can you know you can find a way to um you know find some hope and uh find your own voice and then uh and then you know move move into that path of uh of healing and and uh you know i think we all need a little bit of healing and and uh so it's important to keep talking about you know uh, you know, these topics. Theo Fleury, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are out of time, but we very much appreciate the access as we always do. Uh, yeah, and I thanks for everything that you do. It. I appreciate it. Thanks guys. And uh, keep up the good work there. You're, you're so kind. Theo Fleury, you can follow him on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter at Theo Fleury 14. One, two, three. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling, and she is Shanalee Vidal. She joins us now for three things today that have to do with loneliness. Hi, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Boy, I was just mentioning that I'm kind of sour today. I don't know if this is going to help me or not. <laughs> I hope so. I think I, I might, might have a tip in thing number three that uh, might that might okay. help you. I'm watching the cloud <laughs> roll in over Pola Park and over the eastern part of the city, so maybe that has something to do with it. What have you got for us today? Where are we going? To, to Great Britain first? To Great Britain first, yes. Uh, Prime, Min- Prime Minister Theresa May has announced a new ministerial position, the Minister of Loneliness. Loneliness. And this minister will be tasked with tackling social isolation. And this is in response to recommendations made by a commission that found rates of loneliness are 
worryingly high across all age groups. And some experts say this is, is an issue that Canada should address as well. BC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie says government intervention may not be the best solution, but at least it's starting a conversation. And she says people of all ages are experiencing loneliness, and it's time that as a society we start looking at those causes. We need to look at some of the decisions we are making as society on how we're choosing to live that may be contributing over time to creating the circumstances that that lead to isolation and loneliness. Decisions like living in single-family houses in the suburbs, driving alone in cars, communicating through social media rather than in person. You know, when we were talking with Theron Fleury, mm-hmm. he mentioned the fact, you know, get off your personal communication devices, start interacting with human beings. And, and I think there's a huge message there that uh, for as much as we think social media uh, connects us, Kelly Moore calls it unsocial media. And and it's true because you kind of, you go on social media and especially if you're kind of susceptible to feeling sad or lonely, you see other people's lives and it makes you feel worse or, you know, you didn't get all of the likes or somebody posts something negative and it just, it's very something or you see something sad. So sometimes it's really good to take that break and get away for it. So now for number two, okay. I'm going to give you some nu- some numbers. All right. So the director of of the Gerontology Research Center at the at Simon Fraser University says one in five, one in five Canadians experience social isolation or loneliness, and seniors are particularly at risk. Andrew Wister says isolation can lead to serious consequences for a person's health and well-being. But the good news is it can be turned around. He says he's spoken with seniors in Toronto, went from depressed and isolated to fully engaged with their community. And they said it was just one knock on the door. One person got to them and then they started volunteering. And ever since then, you know, their, their life has changed significantly. And I know, I think the volunteering, it, it's it's a big thing, especially you're, you're a senior, maybe you're retired, maybe you're, you're, you're are, are isolated. And I know a lot of people, a lot of seniors who've gone out and, and, and volunteered and, you know, that was their place to be that was their thing to go right and that was their their people to see and my mom she volunteers at the at her church once a week that's her thing she was kind of like um she you know answered the phone and now she's been upgraded to like a some kind of other job there but that's her 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 little volunteer thing that she does and that brings her a lot of joy i know she's moving up the ladder so to speak <laughs> we've been talking about man sheds women sheds and of course the idea that loneliness could be the biggest threat to men's health as we age uh, being, uh, you know, something that we've been talking about, uh, at least uh, Brett and I have been speaking about for over a year and a half now, uh, something that is uh, something that is very critical. And so this is great for Great Britain to be tackling this. And these statistics are a little bothersome. It, it is. And especially I think and I think about myself, too, like like even I think. I've always been one of those lonelier people, even even in a room full of crowded people, even here at 680 CJB in the newsroom, right? I, I can feel super lonely, right? Because if you're not, maybe if you're not connecting with people or if you feel just, you're, you you know, you are susceptible to being one of those more lonelier peoples because maybe you don't feel that you're a part of the team or something like that, right? Okay. And, and if you're, you're feeling like that, I know it, there are lots of good things that you can do. And like you were talking about your negativity, Mm-hmm. Writing. Writing can be super therapeutic. Yeah, sometimes it's just saying uh, how you feel, right? Exactly. Have either of you ever kept a journal? No, but sometimes I scribble down notes when I'm watching TV. Okay. Uh, if I'm like concocting a review or something and then they end up uh, sometimes just my random thoughts spill uh, out onto the page. Well, that's that's good. And, and 
to, to help with your feelings. I, I need to do that more to exercise the left side of my brain. Exactly, because researchers have found that that's that's going to strengthen that left side of your brain where the that's the logical side, and it's going to open open the way for the creative right side of the brain to experience emotions. And so this is going to remove mental blocks, allow you to process and understand what's going on along, going on around you. Now, there's this website that I found. It's called thelonelinessproject.org, and each week all kinds of people share their own stories about loneliness, and it's pretty neat. Now, here's a sample of what was one of the uh, loneliness stories. This was submitted by Emma. She's 16 years old, and it says, Last time I felt lonely was now. To me, loneliness means... Wanting to be close with someone, but being alone and distant from them. One of the first times I realized I was lonely was sitting at lunch and realizing that I was the only one sitting alone. The only one who didn't even talk to anyone online. And just, I think that says a lot right there. And there's all kinds of, of stories all like that, all kinds of people answering those questions. And it changes every week. And the site also includes information on where to go when you, you do really need someone to reach out to, someone to talk to. And also coming soon, the, I guess the project is so successful that there's a couple of spinoff websites coming soon. The Guilt Project, The Failure Project, and The Insecurity Project. Well, it's great to bring these things to light because I think for... As many people that present themselves as confident and engaged, uh, there is many people who are presenting themselves that way and they aren't actually... One in five. That way. Yeah. Well, and you mean comedians are often perfect examples. You know, yes. they, they get on... Uh, I mean, look at dearly departed Robin Williams. He'd come on interviews and he'd be... he'd almost, It was a breakneck pace often of just jokes and jokes and jokes because he was trying to put out on a front... Um, to to hide the stuff that was going on sort of behind the scenes. And speaking of comedians, Big Daddy Taz, I know he has been another advocate for that that kind of stuff as well and for mental health. And we're actually going to be talking to him later this morning at 8.45. Well, he's one of the most prominent people to kind of put his mental health issues out there by calling himself and marketing himself as the bipolar Buddha. And I mean, that's going over a decade now. He's been talking to uh, talking about himself in that fashion. So looking forward to speaking to him later on this morning. Chandelier Vidal, three things for Chandelier every day on 680 CJOB right after the 8 o'clock news. Hey, uh, Winnipeg will not be the home to Amazon's HQ2. The list of 20 finalists has been released this morning. But it is, it is however, unfortunately, home to the emerald ash borer, an invasive beetle that has been expected with nervous anticipation for a decade. It was discovered in three trees in St. Boniface just before Christmas. The city is now putting wheels in motion to protect its trees. There are an estimated 350,000 ash trees in Winnipeg on public and private property. On Wednesday, experts from Ontario helped lead workshops for city foresters detailing how to sample branches and survey tree populations. And to tell us more about the emerald ash borer, we are joined by the Stewardship Manager for Nature Conservancy Canada, Winnipeg Branch, Julie Pelk, who is also the head of the Invasive Species Council of Manitoba, joining us live on 680 CGOB. Julie, thank you very much for taking the time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Julie, we've been hearing about this uh, beetle for several months now, and it, and it's actually striking a little bit of fear into many of us because the, the canopy of, of trees that include uh, elms and, of course, ash trees, uh, so integral in terms of our quality of life and, and part of what 
creates this uh, urban oasis in Winnipeg, particularly in the summertime. Uh, how scared should we be about this little guy? Yeah, so Emerald Ashbor is here, and and I mean, a lot of the, the fear or uncertainty is because we, we just don't really know how fast it's going to, to impact all of um, our ash trees here in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. Um, it's, it's here. We've heard about it being found in St. Boniface, and, and we just don't know how quickly it's going to spread. And I mean, we've, we've heard estimates that over the next 10 years, we're going to lose all of our ash trees. And the, the city of Winnipeg is, is uh, working really well to um, address and respond to that um, infestation of emerald ash borer. How well you mentioned that uh, they, they've been spotted, they've been discovered in St. Boniface. So, how do we know what to look for? Yeah, so I guess what what has been seen is um, signs of infestation on the the ash trees. So you know when when you you see your ash trees and you notice some decline in the health of the tree. So it just doesn't really look as green as it should with the leaves in the summer. It's starting to lose some of those leaves in in the top part of the tree, which is sometimes hard to see in a big tree. You got to really really look up, right? And uh, so that would be one sign. But you can also see which is what we've heard a lot about in the media, is the um, evidence on the bark of the tree. So um, what happens is that the beetle, the female beetle flies around, it lays some eggs on the bark, the the eggs then hatch and they go inside the tree, they feed on the wood in there. Um, And then what happens as they feed, they end up cutting off the the food and the water going up and down the tree. So the tree starts to die. And so then you see uh, evidence of the tree dying. And then um, one of the the best uh, symptoms to look for is these D-shaped exit holes on the bark. And so they're pretty small, like the size of a thumbnail, um, but they look like a D shape. And it's just something odd that you wouldn't normally see on a tree, but also uh, increased um, woodpecker activity. So if you see woodpeckers, the birds in your trees, feeding on those trees for those um, emerald ash borer um, in the tree, that's another evidence, uh, sign of evidence. Julie Pelk is with us. She is the stewardship manager for Nature Conservancy of Canada here in Winnipeg. And this, this, these ash trees are part of the urban for, forest. Julie, explain to us how these beetles would have gotten here. It's not like there's a string of ash trees and forests that connect us to any other ecosystem, unless I'm incorrect about that. Uh, the elm trees, that 350,000 population inside Winnipeg is sort of a standalone population, is it not? Um, well, you know, it, it is really interesting in that you say, how did it get here? So it was surprising because the uh, closest um, known location is over 100 kilometers away Um uh, from from Winnipeg, and so emerald ash borer attacks ash trees, all species of ash, and so there are the native forest components, which could connect essentially other locations to Winnipeg. And then in Winnipeg, we have not only some of the the native forests along our our rivers and some of our um, natural stands of forest, but we also have our boulevard trees. Um, and so those would be more ornamental species. And Nature Conservancy, we focus a lot on the work in our natural areas. 
um, with our forests along our riparian areas, our rivers. But you ask, how did it get here? So I think that that's something where we all can play a part in helping to slow down the spread of emerald ash borer and any other invasive species. Um, but looking at emerald ash borer, it's being transported likely on firewood. Um, so what we're saying is buy your firewood local, burn local, don't move firewood. So that will assist with those, it'll catch a ride on the wood and move from one location to the other. So it's being assisted. Um, traveling on its own, um, the, the beetles can fly maybe 10 to 20 kilometers on their own. Um, but once they get to an area, say like Winnipeg, and there's lots of ash trees, they're going to feed and they're going to grow with their population um, and maybe travel a small distance a year, like two kilometers a year, which would take a long time for it to move to other locations. So what's key is don't move firewood. We have to run uh, in a couple of minutes here, Julie, but uh, but I'm curious to know, can they be stopped? Yeah, and that's what's difficult because what we see from other locations is they're so entrenched that they're here. No, we can't. But what we can do is try to slow down the spread and try to control the damage that it's causing. Um, so, unfortunately, it's here. It's probably going to kill about 99% of our ash trees that boy, we have. Boy, that, that's heartbreaking to, to hear you to hear you say that out loud. We, you know, that was the suspicion, and that's the discussion that's been going on. But to hear you say it right into my ear like that, Julie, it's it's very very distressful. I know, and it is for us too. And we're learning from people out east and what's happened there. So we see it. It, it has happened. So it's not something that that we're speculating. It it will potentially happen. Uh, this just reminds me of the zebra mussels uh, plaguing our lakes, right? We heard mm-hmm. about them in Ontario for a decade or more. And then now, you know, oh, we found them in Lake Winnipeg. And now they're even talking about them being discovered in Clear Lake of all places in Riding Mountain. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we just have to do a better job of, like you say, not hauling firewood and with the zebra mussels cleaning our boats when we go from one body of water to the other. We have such a gigantic role to play on this and other issues with regards to the environment. That's right. All right, Julie Palk, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Julie is the Stewardship Manager for Nature Conservancy Canada, Winnipeg Branch. She's also the head of the Invasive Species Council of Manitoba. The 17th annual Big Daddy Taz and Friends Comedy Night is tomorrow night at Pantages Playhouse. The event is presented by the Winnipeg East Rotary with all the proceeds going to the club's continued support for the community. Big Daddy Taz will be joined by the likes of Steve Patterson, James Mullinger. Oh, you know what? I'm not entirely sure if I'm saying that correctly. So Taz might actually call me out, much like uh, Deputy Mayor Alan Gibb from the uh, pulled us called us both out earlier when we made some <laughs> mistakes with them. Uh, Sierra Noble, Ashley Burdett, John Youngberg, Spencer Adamus, and Dan Verville for the show. Taz is here to give us a preview. Taz, did I say it right? James Mullinger? It's actually pronounced OCN. That's how you say Mullinger's last name. It's it's Mullinger, and, and um, you guys, it's it's not tomorrow night. It's uh, it's next week. It's uh, the twenty sixth of January. So oh yes, pardon people me. are going to uh, line up. Are you guys okay? Have you been drinking? Like I'm just curious. Like we're always drinking, Taz. Don't you? Yeah, I know, don't but you, you listen regularly? Water. 
<laughs> I loved it today when the when the uh, the guy from the pause was like, well, no, not really. That's not that's not the right team, but that's okay. Good for trying, you guys. That's awesome. <laughs> do, do you need us there to carry some of the load, or what? I should open up, and what I'll do is I'll give you some information that's correct, but I'll I'll give it all incorrectly so you get it correctly, and then the stuff I don't need you to say, you can just go by yourself. You know, just oh. read. All right, all right. We should have known better because he listens just about to every minute of every show. So we should have known better than to have him on this morning after the start we had. But but Taz, uh, you heard our conversation with Theron Fleury, I'm sure, yeah, yeah, and, and the whole idea of of sharing of sharing your story and and the powerful benefits that have uh, you know ha- that that come out of that. And and you've been doing that for a long time. You know what? Uh, Theo is a Theo's a, a, a friend, and and we presented together, and and he's a he's a motivating uh, reason that many people get help. And it's it's when somebody of his stature comes forward and says, you know, this is what's happened to me, this is what I've done, this is what I've done incorrectly, and here's how you can learn from me. People listen, right? It's and uh, when when you're not alone, you 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 get the help that you need because you feel not alone. It's when you feel alienated that you you know you know stay. You stay in the shadows. You've amassed a rather all-star lineup here, Big Daddy Taz. Uh, how did you get these friends of yours to, to come join the show every year? I ask them. It's it's that simple. They I say, hey, you guys interested? And they're like, uh, yeah. And uh, I have a, a standing invitation by some of the top names in the in the in the industry to, uh, you know, if I'm available, give me a call. And if I'm available, I'm there. And, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Somebody like Patterson, who's you know, famous for the CBC debaters, which is awesome. I mean, it's, uh, they're a good, uh, I probably shouldn't say anything about another radio station on your radio station, but, uh, Steve's a great guy. And he's, yeah, he's great. He's, he plays for the OCN and, uh, he's a, <laughs> he's a really good, uh, really funny cat and really good heart. All of them do, you know, Sierra Noble, uh, open with her, uh, with her struggles with, uh, depression and, and, uh, all of them, Johnny, Johnny Youngberg too. So, it's uh, there's not a lot of us that haven't in the entertainment industry that haven't experienced, you know, something that we don't want to share. If that's uh, making sense, that makes complete sense. Now, talk about uh, uh, the benefactors of this uh, Winnipeg East Rotary. My dad was a Rotarian for a couple of decades. Did incredible work as a group out in Minnesota. So I'm familiar with what they do. What, what does Rotary do, and why have you hooked up with them? Well, the Rotary Club uh, is is a club that helps uh, everybody and anybody that can come and, and, and sort of plead their case. You know, uh, actually, yesterday's meeting, uh, Rob Nash, who you probably are very familiar with, uh, had come forth and, and, you know, said, hey, you know, I could use some funding to go to some of these schools and and uh, there's 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 nobody that uh, there's nobody that Rotary doesn't consider. And they're just a great group of guys. And the group that I'm involved with, uh, it started out at a CNIB fundraiser, and we started talking about the comedy night, and they, they jumped on board right away. And this year, the Rotary Club is sharing proceeds with the U-Turns Parkinson's, which is a Tim Haig uh, from uh, um, uh, the Amazing Race Canada, who the first winner of that, Tim and his son, Tim, because, you know, they're creative that way. Uh, <laughs> they won that, but um, Tim lives with Parkinson's, and his... his uh, his personal charity is U-Turn Parkinson's, and then we got the Huntington Society is uh, going to be the benefactor as well, and then the anti-bullying machine, which is me going to schools and, and talking to kids about being kind and 
living to their potential and not worrying about what other people think of them, really. Love it, man. I love the work that you do and, and how you're going about it. Uh, Tim, of course, was a nurse at St. Boniface Hospital for yep. a long, long time. And uh, his stories inspired a lot of people with Parkinson's to get active, to get out of their shell. And we know that that's a big barrier for people dealing with physical and mental disabilities and with, with, with uh, other mental issues. Well, you know what? It's, it's, we sometimes live within ourselves, right? We, we sit down and we, we think, oh, I can't do that anymore. So now, it's, you know, and we get more and more drawn into our own depression and we can't see the light. And sometimes other people are our lights and, other, and sometimes we're our own lights. The best part is when you're in the darkest, darkest of days, a tiny little light can be a beacon, right? And, and Tim's that beacon. He gets, I, you know, when we used to uh, work out together, he would, he would be there inspiring anybody else and, and having uh, not with or without Parkinson's. And now this charity I know has been such a great uh, part of his heart for many years. And uh, he does, he gets them out and gets them boxing and gets them moving. And, and uh, you know, it, it, the trickle down effect is fantastic, you know, to see that happening. It's, it's, it's great. It's awe inspiring to be honest with you. Taz, how does one go about getting tickets for this show, which is next Friday, January 26th, at the Pantages Playhouse? <laughs> it is at the Pantages Playhouse next Friday. Thanks. Uh, they can get tickets on Eventbrite. It's just Big Daddy Taz and Friends. Uh, if you go to that, that's the easiest way. If you, uh, you you can get a hold of me on either Facebook or through my website, and I'll try to get the tickets to you personally. Uh, tickets will be available at the door or any of the uh, Wyatt Dowling Insurance guys. Uh, he's uh, Curtis is a... Uh, a Rotary Club member, and uh, he will. Uh, he has the tickets at uh, at the uh, his various locations, or you know, just call one of the Rotary guys. They they have tickets on them in their pockets at all times. Look for the red door. Don't go there tomorrow night. It's next Friday, <laughs> Pantages Theater. Hey, thanks for this, Taz, and uh, thanks for being such a loyal, if not critical, listener. We appreciate it very much. It's it's never critical when a guy that says it loves you guys. So there you go. How's that? <laughs> thanks, brother. We love you too. Hey, lots of. Take care, buddy. All right. Big Daddy Taz, thank you so much for joining us once again. It is Big Daddy Taz and Friends, the 17th annual Big Daddy Taz and Friends Comedy Night in support of local charities. Next Friday, Pantages Playhouse. Tickets are 25 bucks. Now we want to talk about this. Doc, she didn't even look at it. This is more serious than I thought. Apparently your mother is amorously infatuated with you instead of your father. Whoa, wait, wait a minute. Doc, are you trying to tell me that my mother has got the odds for me? Precisely. Whoa, this is heavy. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in that future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Brad McGarry with Greg Mackling and Cineplex Events announced last week the ninth annual Flashback Film Fest is coming back to provide another dose of nostalgia-inducing cinema. Attendees are going to have the chance to see their favorite cyborg assassins, bumbling ex-cons, time-traveling teenagers like Marty McFly, and more when they return to select big screens in 27 locations and cities from across Canada from February 2nd to the 8th, 2018. To tell us more, we are joined by Tanner Ziggin. I hope I'm saying that right, Tanner. Is it Zip Chen? Yeah, you got it there. But, yeah, but, but you. you go by Tanner Z. The official Cineplex B-Show host. That's what they call me, yeah.
Tanner Z, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. The Flashback Film Fest, this is an event that I have uh, long found exciting. It started off, actually, it's evolved into the Flashback Film Fest, has it not? Yeah, it's really uh, come a long way. Now this year we have 15 uh, films and, and great films too. A lot of favorites like we're you know talking Back to the Future there and, and a bunch that uh, maybe it's our first time at the festival. Some have uh, made a return that are favorites that come back uh, almost every year because people just love to see these movies on the big screen. But uh, this year we have a great mix of we get some action, some sci-fi, some comedy. So there's really something for, for everybody at this festival. Well, give us a little bit of a list, Tyler. Or Tanner, sorry. Yeah, we've got a we've got a ton of great films. Uh, I'm excited for the, the Cornetto trilogy, as people know it as. This is Edgar Wright's uh, three big movies. So we have Hot Fuzz, we have uh, Shaun of the Dead, and uh, The World's End. And this is the Simon Pegg, uh, the Simon Pegg films that everybody loves. Uh, those are hitting the big screen again. You can see them all. Also, a Terminator, not only Terminator One, but Terminator Two: Judgment Day in 3D, which is uh, very cool. You may have already seen Terminator in theaters, but the 3D part is uh, fairly new. They just uh, converted that movie over to 3D, 3D not too long ago, so that's a whole new experience, as well as other classics like uh, we have A View to Kill, we have Back to the Future, Raising Arizona, Gremlins, which is uh, always causes some debate every year as far as we just had the holidays. Is, is Gremlins a Christmas movie? I don't know where you stand on that, but I know people argue about Die Hard as well. Well, where do you but, uh, stand you on Gremlins, Tanner? at the festival. And, uh, yeah, The Iron Giant, which is another favorite of mine. Uh, this one is a great animated film, and it, uh, it's got a, a blend of, like, some practical and CG animation, and it's an amazing story. And uh, Vin Diesel actually voiced The Iron Giant. This is before he kind of went on to do the Fast and Furious stuff and then lent his voice uh, to Groot and Guardians of the Galaxy. Where do you stand, Tanner, on the Gremlins being a Christmas movie or not? That's the thing people say, you know, if it's, it's set at Christmas time, you know, that's maybe that's en- enough for someone to make it a holiday movie. Uh, I, I know if Die Hard, a lot of people uh, debate about that one as well. But see, some people say it has to have the, you know, the Christmas spirit. But, you know, and, and, you know, in the movie, Billy gets Gizmo as a Christmas present and then he learns about family values and responsibility and, and whatnot. So I would say I would say it's just as much a Christmas movie as Home Alone, because. You know, if you get rid of the Christmas and Home Alone, it's just a you know a kid who gets in trouble with two burglars, and you know that could be at any time of the year. So I would I would say, yeah, it's a holiday movie for me. So this is happening here in Winnipeg at uh, the Cineplex McGilvery location. Again, it's February second to February eighth. You mentioned the Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg Cornetto trilogy: Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. I actually just recently watched Hot Fuzz. Again, and uh, I think what what is symbolic about that movie as it relates to this particular festival is how uh, endlessly rewatchable it is for me. And that's why I think I like this event so much, because you guys do such a great job of picking these timeless classics that you can have watched them last week or maybe haven't watched them in 10 years. But it's like visiting an old friend when you go to see them again. Oh, 100%. And the great thing, too, is it's also an opportunity for uh, people to, you know, pass on these films. So maybe you're a parent or a friend and you, know, you can bring your kids to you know, a movie that maybe you grew up with and you can, you know, pass pass that on now. So I know a friend of mine is taking his, uh, like, teenage son to see Terminator because he was, you know, around that age when he saw it in theaters. And it's kind of a cool way to kind of have that experience and, and really, you know, pass on it and share that with the next generation, which is the other beauty of this. So it's these movies that are back on the big screen to captivate a whole new generation of audiences as well. 
All right, Tanner Z, we got to let you go. We have to run. But thank you so much for joining us to tell us about this. And thank you to Cineplex for continuing to do this awesome, awesome event. So many great old movies that you've dug up here for us to see on a big screen. In many cases, the first time in digital format. So thank you. All right, thanks a lot. All right, Tanner Z is the official Cineplex pre-show host. If you have ever been to a movie at Cineplex, you know his face. He's the handsome lad who is wandering around with a microphone on the big screen talking to people at the movies, telling you about all the cool stuff that Cineplex is bringing, including the Flashback Film Fest, the ninth annual, happening February 2nd to the 8th. And, uh, Greg, uh, do, you, do you feel a hankering to maybe go ever seen The Big Lebowski? I was going to say The Big Lebowski would probably be my choice. I don't see Fast Times at Ridgemont High on this list. Well, and that's the problem. It's how, how do you pick? I never saw that movie in the theater. I was way too young, so only saw it on VHS. But with that soundtrack, it would be spectacular if it was digitally remastered and to hear a lot of that music, including a little Led Zeppelin. I think there's some Van Halen in there. And uh, all the big stars that eventually went on to tremendously huge things in that film. That would be at the top of my list. But on the list being presented, you nailed it with The Big Lebowski. Fast For some of us, winter's the best season of the year because it means recreational activities like skating, skiing, and snowmobiling. So we thought we would reach out to snowman, snowmobilers of Manitoba to see how the trails are looking at 917. And we are joined by Yvonne Raidut, Executive Director of Snowman. And Yvonne, before we go anywhere, good morning, by the way. Good morning. Yvonne, I've been meaning to ask you this. Where are you from originally? You're not, are you from Manitoba? Uh, No, I'm from Newfoundland. You're from Newfoundland. Oh, very good. Did you happen to get tickets for Come From Away for the the sold out show? I did not, unfortunately. I tried to. (laughs) Have you seen it before? Uh, No, I have not. Okay. well, Well, I would say I would nominate you. If anybody has extra tickets. Contact Snowman so that Yvonne can can see this incredible play. Yvonne, obviously we haven't had a ton of snow this winter. It's been cold at times, going up to six degrees tomorrow. Talk about a hodgepodge for you and your members. Yeah, we were glad with the freeze up that we got. That was great, but we certainly do need snow. Uh, the majority of areas in the province have low snow conditions. Uh, we do have trails that are signed and groomed. We have... Uh, some that are open, uh, not uh, not 50% like we would like to see. Uh, we had one close overnight in the Dolphin area. And how do so you Tempe- how do you keep track of that kind of thing? You say one closed in the Dolphin area. So who determined that the trail needs to be closed? It would be determined by the club. We have trackers on all the groomers, uh, GPS systems. And I can go on my computer here in the office in Winnipeg and see who's grooming, uh, see what trails are open, and we have the updates on our website. So you can go into the trail conditions and see what's open, and also they have any warnings on there if there's low snow conditions and that sort of thing. And this is the sort of service that your snowman pass goes to pay for. Uh, Yes, it is. Yeah, it's, it's very impressive, the work that you do. And I've been overwhelmed in the last few years, spending some time up in uh, the eastern side of Lake Winnipeg. Uh, a lot of my friends are starting to enjoy going to the cottage and going to cottage country more in the winter than they are in the summer because of these recreational opportunities like uh, getting out on uh, the snow machine. 
yeah, there's there's certainly nothing like being out on the on the sled and enjoying nature, getting to places of Man- parts of Manitoba that you can't get by any other method of transportation, um, and stopping at a shelter, you know, having a wiener roast. It, it's magnificent. Now, Yvonne, when there is a lack of snow, like there is this year, um, did, does that add, an, and, and I come at this from a complete uh, place of complete ignorance, I've never been on a snow machine, it's on my bucket list of things I'd like to try, but does it add extra levels of, of not necessarily danger, but maybe extra levels of caution uh, for, the, for the fact that you might hit a part of a trail that could use some extra snow? Uh, yes, it certainly does. Uh, we ask people to, you know, check the website, go to the places that do have snow. Um, at least our waterways are frozen up this year. I do have a lot of concerns with the temperature rising to 6 tomorrow, uh, what that will end up entailing for us. Uh, the western part of the province got rain yesterday, so that's going to end up freezing when we uh, when the temperature changes again and making ice on the trails. So uh, once again, give us the website so people can get up to the minute information in terms of those trail conditions, uh, you know, where they're at and and uh, all the different information for members. Uh, yes, it's under trail conditions at snowman, S-N-O-M-A-N dot M-B dot C-A. Yvonne Ryder, thank you so much for joining us. Executive Director of Snowman, good friend of this radio station. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you as well. Thank you. The Watchmen, one of their great songs, uh, an ode to Winnipeg. And uh, this is a little bit of an ode to Winnipeg. The story we're going to share with you today for the first time ever. Israel will be sending a skeleton athlete to the Olympics. Only 30 athletes make it to this event. And to tell us about that goal and achieving it is David Gray's founding president of Israel's national bobsled and skeleton team. And uh, David is a proud Winnipegger. And uh, congratulations, first and foremost, Dave. This is, this is huge news. When it came across the Facebook feed, about, uh, it was about noon yesterday. Yeah. I was so thrilled for you because I know this has been a passion project of yours for almost 16 years now. Well, just hearing the intro with you uh, saying the first time ever, I got a little emotional just sitting here, and I, I'm, I'm collecting my thoughts. Um, yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's a, It's been a 16-year project. It started with uh, me and my two uh, teammates in 2002 when we established the bobsled team, uh, often compared to the Jamaican bobsled team, and we were happy with that comparison. They popularized the sport, and people really knew bobsled after that movie. Um, and then just year after year grinding it out, we didn't make our way to the Olympic Games, but we had the uh, great privilege of uh, competing at two world championships uh, for Israel as a bobsled team. Uh, and we retired just before the Torino Games. And then I took a year off, and then I started to get a few phone calls from a couple athletes that were looking for sports and interested in the sliding sports. And one thing led to another and connected with a couple of skeleton athletes that led me to other skeleton athletes and so on and so forth. In the last two and a half, last three years, I've been working with four athletes, uh, amazing guys, um, uh, and all fighting uh, for the same uh, thing, to compete at the Olympic Games under the flag of Israel. Um, But the interesting dynamic is it's an individual sport. So I'm representing four athletes. They're all Israeli athletes on the Israeli team, essentially. 
but um, only one guy was going to get to go if we qualified. We had to also qualify a spot. So, did so, like in the broad sense, did Israel as a country and the four sleds have to be good enough as an overall team with one athlete getting to go? Is is that it, part it, of the conversation? It's based on your national ranking. You get points, international points, or world ranking points, World Cup points. So after each race, depending on whatever circuit you're on, you get a certain amount of points. And at the end of the season, if you're within the top 60 in the world, that's the international criteria to qualify for the sport. Uh, and at that point, then it's just what athletes are going to go within those 60, and that's where it gets tricky. So I had two athletes within the 60, uh, so we unfortunately had to make a decision um, as to who our number one athlete would be. Uh, it isn't always based on who's the number one points guy because uh, they could be separated by only a few points. It's also based on our, our team selection races, who won the selection races, uh, who won all the head-to-head -head races during the year. So the number two guy uh, could be uh, higher in points, but the number one guy may have uh, won all the races. So it was a very difficult process. Um, but we got to our number one, and then we found out uh, 20... Four hours ago, 30 hours ago, at a 5 a.m. email. Uh, congratulations, David. Uh, you've qualified a sled for the Olympics. And I'm just getting chills just saying it, but it was an amazing moment. And now, uh, David, I wanna, we want to hear more about this particular uh, <coughs> event. I mean, it's historic. But I, I'm curious to know, how does a Winnipegger end up competing in bobsled for <laughs> Israel back in, in the early 2000s, as you alluded to? The short story is I lived in Calgary for about a year and a half. My wife and I did in the early 2000s. And... A good friend of mine, Rich Naren, is the vice president of communications for the Coyotes, the Phoenix Coyotes NHL team, Arizona Coyotes. His brother-in-law had established the team and was starting to try to make a push for the games in, in, um, in Torino, Italy. He saw the games in Salt Lake City and said, I, you know, I'm a lover of Israel. I'm a lover of sport. I'm a lover of speed. He was an Air Force pilot. He flew F-4 Phantoms. He said, I can do this thing. So he, he investigated. Long story short, I was living in Calgary. One of the guys hurt himself hurt himself, and uh, Aaron, uh, my pilot at the time, before I knew him, called Rich in Phoenix and said, we need a Jewish guy in Calgary. Do you know anyone? <laughs> <laughs> That's the qualification. <laughs> so my nickname is Gravy, and uh, and Rich said, uh, call Gravy. You know, he'll do anything, and he's in Calgary. So I found myself in the back of a bobsled about two weeks later. I uh, fell in love with uh, the community of bobsled, the sporting community, the athletes, um, and the idea of doing, like when you hear the track is clear for Israel 1, right? And again, I get chills saying that, or Canada 1, or whatever country you're representing. There's a special, it's silent up there. Everybody hears that. And uh, the first time I heard it, I was hooked. Um, and then I just kept on. Uh, we're all dual citizens. Uh, my current athletes, myself, dual Canadian or American uh, Israeli uh, citizens, and um, we've pushed uh, very hard over the last number of years to be where we are today. I mean, you're as proud of Pegger as they come, Dave, sure. and uh, you're so proud of your Israeli heritage as well. A and so it doesn't surprise me to see you with tears in your eyes sitting here just talking about and speaking about what's going to happen and your experience because. We're looking at the Olympics, and, and it's inevitable, right? Ah, I'm not going to watch. That's, eh, you know, the IOC is this, and the IOC is that, and, yeah. the, and the bidding process is broken. But inevitably, we all get sucked into this. And I don't mean sucked in in a bad way, because it really plays on our patriotism, our nationalism. And for me, there was no better sight than John Montgomery. Yep. You want to talk about skeleton, yep. right? A boy yep. from Russell, Manitoba, yeah, that's, that's right. who, you know, going down that skeleton. 
Alaska and winning a gold medal for Canada, for Manitoba. The, the, I'm getting chills thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. It, it just, it, 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 there's so much of this is about pride. It's pride and it's human interest, right? So you, 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 you look at the doping scandal from Sochi and that has an impact on us and our athletes too in terms of what athletes may not be eligible to compete at the games and where that puts us in the world ranking. So there are some implications there, even though something that happened four years ago. Uh, the human interest, though, is is learning about the athletes. You know, CBC does it, I think, the best of any of the networks. You learn about the struggles and the 4 a.m. Uh, wake-ups and, and swimming practices or sledding practices. You learn about these athletes and you become hooked. So there's this pride within your national um, constituency, and then you learn about what these athletes did. My uh, AJ, who is the athlete going to uh, going to the games with me, um, he wrote a beautiful point on his Facebook post, only a little bit about what he accomplished, but what so many others on this day were feeling who did not get the Olympic nod. Uh, the sleeping cars, uh, you know, missing meals, missing holidays with families, broken bones, commitment to their to their countries, doing everything possible, but missed it by a hundredth of a second. There are way more stories of people who did not qualify for the Games than there are for our stories of, of people uh, who did. Um, so, uh, so those stories, too, have to be told, and we've done our best, and we'll continue to talk about that camaraderie, those athletes who we love and our friends who will now be cheering us on, um, it's, uh, it's a, it's, there's, there's two dynamics to this story. So, David, with this, the, where do you live, actually, right now? Do you live in... My address, or... You're coming over, or what? <laughs> do you live in Winnipeg or Calgary? I or? live in Winnipeg. I've been in Winnipeg most of my life. Uh, born in Toronto, but moved here when I was uh, six with my family. Uh, did a short stint in Calgary, as I said, but we, we always knew we'd get back to Winnipeg, and uh, so I've been a Winnipegger as my whole life. Yeah. So where do you have to go then to do the, the coaching for this? Well, um, the interesting thing about this sport is most athletes have their own individual coaches. In the summer, they've got track coaches or sprinting coaches, um, and and they don't need a track as in a nice track. They just they are training like an athlete, like, like, a, like a sprint athlete. Um, during the season, uh, there's also, um, uh, you know, coaches that are specific to that particular track, right? So you might be racing in Eagles Austria or in Whistler. Uh, there are uh, experts on those tracks now. So uh, the athletes share coaching and often sometimes hire their own coaching. I'm an overall, I guess, you know, GM more than a coach. Uh, and I work on the relationships between the athletes and the International Federation, our Olympic Committee, and whatever, whatever coaches we have to develop relationships uh, with. Joined in studio, David Graves, gravy to his friends, founding president of Israel's national bobsled and skeleton team and and for the very first time, a skeleton athlete from Israel is qualified for the Winter Olympics. They'll be qualified, or pardon me, competing at Pyeongchang, South Korea. But before the break, we were talking about your journey to this, Dave. And uh, you and I have uh, known each other an awfully long time. And I know some of your stories. Uh, you're a great storyteller. But the one that always hits me in the heart and uh, resonates with me, because I know what an emotional experience it was for you, was during the 2004 World Bobsleigh Championships in Germany yeah. and the location, the physical location of that track. Um, well, why don't you tell a story? Well, yeah, it's uh, it was interesting. We, we as a team were going back uh, to Germany and in rural parts of Germany, we had no idea what the Israeli team, what the welcome would be like. Uh, just 
really no idea. And and we were told by the Israeli uh, sporting authority um, that most Israeli teams, when they travel, they don't wear their colors. They don't wear the Israeli flag for for whatever the reasons are. We remember Munich, and that's something we didn't talk about today, but something that sort of um, I'll be thinking about certainly as we march into the stadium uh, in a few weeks. Um, Edge in uh, in a place called Berchtesgaden, Germany. There's a pla- there's a mountain fortress called Eagle's Nest, and it was uh, basically a, a vacation home for Hitler. Uh, and it's still it's a museum now, and it's a massive uh, structure on top of the largest peak in a valley of little Bavarian towns. Uh, and you see this thing everywhere you look. So here we were, the Israeli uh, bobsled team, um, sixty some odd years after the Holocaust, uh, probably. No Jews in that part of the world, uh, certainly back in Holocaust uh, times. Maybe we were a handful of Jews at the time. The state of Israel didn't exist during World War II. It was created after, uh, established after World War II. Um, And we were there with the Israeli flag. And um, I remember looking at the track where they have all the flags of all the nations around that are competing. And our flag was sort of on, on a corner, and you look up, and right above the Israeli flag, way up, you know, thousands of feet in the air, way off in the distance, you could see Eagle's Nest, and it was in line with the Israeli flag. So it was very, it was a very moving and poignant moment. The opening ceremonies to the World Championships that year, uh, they had uh, is uh, the little German kids from the community walking in with each nation flag, and they'd play a song from that country. So for Canada, they played like. Uh, Life is a Highway by Tom Cochran, and and they played an Irish Rovers drinking tune for the Irish team, and we're thinking, what are they going to play for us? Like, what? And then they played, we heard this music, and they announced our team, and the crowd cheered like crazy. And it was Hatikva, which is the Israeli national anthem. So we hadn't even competed yet, and we weren't likely going to win a medal, and they played the national anthem, and it was just, we were very emotional. Um, our coach is Australia. Was no, sorry, my goodness, he's New Zealander. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry, Ross. There's a dangerous <laughs> distinction you don't want to mess Ross, up. I'm sorry, I got lots of things in my head. If you're listening, um, uh, and he wasn't sure what was going on, and I said, "This is our, this is our national anthem." Anyway, it was, it was, um, it was a very moving moment um, because, as I said uh, previous to um, previous to uh, that moment. Certainly Hatikva had never been played in that part of the world. Uh, and as I said, the state of Israel didn't exist during the Holocaust. And here we were, three North American Jews, dual citizens of Israel, bringing the Israeli flag basically to the front yard of, of Hitler um, uh, decades later. But it was, um, it was a very special time for us. And, and we still talk about that. And, and since then, my athletes, skeleton athletes over the last number, 10 years or so, have all raced at this track. Uh, it's actually in uh, Koenigsee. Uh, Koenigsee is, uh, is a, an adjacent town to Berchtesgaden, but it's you see it um, from everywhere. I'm sure Jeff Courier uh, didn't mind giving up his time so Dave could share that story with us. Congratulations oh, once again, David. And uh, we'll be tracking you. Hopefully we can catch up to you uh, from Pyeongchang during the Olympics, if that'd be okay. I'd be honored to, uh, to call in or to talk to you or send you a Facebook message. Uh, very excited about it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for your time. David Graves, founding president of Israel's national bobsled skeleton team for the first time in his... In history, an Israeli athlete will compete in the sport of skeleton in the Winter Olympics. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Shanley Vidal, I'm Brett McGarry, he's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB.